Mm. Amen. Amen. Don't y'all love the, the Sundays where you have church before church? Like, I feel like we can go home now and God is already blessed. But luckily, we still have some time together. So my name is Raph. For those of you I haven't had the pleasure of meeting, I'm the associate pastor here at Relentless Church and super excited to be here with you, to worship with you today. Thank you for, for joining us. Thank you, those of you who are tuning in online. Um, if, you, uh, if you are a first time guests, or maybe you just weren't here last week for, uh, for whatever reason, uh, I want you to know we kicked off last Sunday a new series on the book of Esther, and we chose to call it Esther. Very creative, right? But we do have a subtitle there. It's uh, Choosing to See. Choosing to See. And that subtitle, Choosing to See, is born out of the fact that God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther. Not once in all 10 chapters, okay? But, but uh, his presence is evident throughout the entire narrative, right? I would argue it is, it is uh, undeniable, okay? And, and, and so uh, last week, uh, Pastor David kicked the series off for us. And, and he, if you've never heard the story of Esther, if you're unfamiliar with it, um, I highly encourage you to go to our website, check out last week's message because he tells the whole story. I'll tell cha- all 10 chapters, but he made, it, he made it fun and engaging. And there was the ups and the downs. It was a masterful uh, 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 display of storytelling. And so I don't, I don't just say that because he's my boss and I have to. I mean it. I, I, was, I was like, wow, this was amazing. This was, this, was, this was good. And so again, if you're not familiar with the story, check that out. Uh, it's on our website. Also, I would encourage you to, uh, to dig into your Bible and, and read the, the story of Esther for, your, for yourself. I've been listening to it on the Bible app, like when I drive. And so it's just kind of ingesting and getting it in me while I'm, I'm multitasking, but that's been very helpful. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and also we have um, some small groups that are starting this week and they're gonna actually, we're gonna be studying a six week study on the book of Esther. That's on Right Now Media. It's available to everyone in our church. And so uh, if you got the email about Right Now Media, go ahead and set up your account and, and you have access to that and thousands of other like really, really cool sto- uh, studies and resources. And so just wanted to, wanted to plug that there for you. Um, but for the next few weeks, we are gonna to be uh, kind of zooming in and focusing on uh, a few different characters in the story of Esther. And today specifically, we're going to talk about the man named Mordecai. All right. But before I, I, I kind of dig in, deep dive into Mordecai, I got my own story to, to tell. Um, this story takes place. It's a true story like Esther, right? I said, we say story, but understand it's, it's their real accounts come, come from, from scripture, from, from the Bible, okay? Uh, my story is not from scripture. It's from my life, but it is also a true story. It took place on February 5th, 2017, Super Bowl Sunday. All right, New England Patriots are playing the Atlanta Falcons. Stay, as soon as I said Patriots, some of you, like I saw eyes glaze over. You're out. No, come on, stay with me, stay with me, all right? All right, Pats, 2017 Super Bowl Sunday. It is known as the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. I would argue probably the second greatest comeback in sports history ever. Number one being the Red Sox coming back from three games down to the New York Yankees in 2004. Okay, but I digress. All right, stay with me, Patriots, Super Bowl Sunday. 2017, I, my family and I live in Kentucky. We have not yet moved. This is about eight months before we moved to North Carolina to join Relentless Church. I was the youth pastor at Journey Church, and uh, I, we had our youth meetings, our youth group, on Sunday nights, okay? Every Sunday night, we'd get together and meet. So it's Super Bowl Sunday. My team's playing. I got to watch this game, but I also have to work. So Super Bowl party, all right? Like, students, we're going to have a Super Bowl bash at the church. Come on down. Had a ton of food. We had a big projection screen. Going to be awesome, right? I'm super excited. We've got about 40 kids show up, and, and we're watching the game. Now, here's, here's the catch. There's probably out of all those kids, there's, there's not one of them. Every single, I think there was maybe one 
Trey boy who was on my side, everyone else was rooting for the Falcons. All of them. And they couldn't wait to let me have it. Like they just, they made sure I knew that, right? So they weren't even Falcons fans. Someone went out and bought jerseys and t-shirts just to like rub it in, okay? So, so I'm watching the game, me and maybe one other little Pats fan and, and a bunch of Falcons fans. And, and you know, um, if you're not familiar with the game, basically the Pats got down early, right? Patriots are down 7 nothing, 14 nothing, 21 to 3 at halftime. Okay, and these little haters just start running their mouths. Every single one of them just start talking so much smack, right? And at first I'm like trying to roll with it and take him. Like, ah, no big deal, I'm smiling, but like inside I'm dying, it's killing me. I'm like, come on, what are we doing? What's happening right now? So come halftime, you know, it's a school night. Half of the kids kind of, you know, the parents come pick them up, they gotta go home. The other half that are there, they're not even paying attention anymore. Uh, the handful that are watching the game, they're the ones talking the most trash to me, right? So by this point, I'm like questioning what I'm doing with my life, okay? The, the third quarter starts, and the Falcons score again. Now it's 28 to 3, and I'm like, all right, y'all, party's over. Party is over. I kicked the Call your parents. Tell them to come get you. I kicked them out, and I hopped in my car, and I went home, resolved to watch the rest of this game by myself on the couch. All right? So I get on the couch, turn on the, like, I'm down. I know, you know, this is not, doesn't look good, but I have to watch. I got to support my team. And so I put it on, and, and then the magic happens. Tom Brady, I just had to get rid of the bad karma, right? Get rid of all that dead weight, you know, <laughs> sit on the couch and man, Brady takes him down. We score a touchdown, score another one. Next thing I know, it's, it's two minutes left in the fourth quarter. We're driving with the ball. Brady's got the ball, okay? Touchdown, tie game. We go into overtime. Patriots win the Super Bowl. Again, completing. They were down 25 points at the end, six minutes into the third quarter. Greatest comeback I've ever seen, okay? Now, I wish I could stand up here and tell you all that I never had a doubt, but I would be lying. I'd be lying. I'd say, never once was I in doubt. I'd, I had lots of doubts. I was up and down. I was very emotional for me, okay? But I will tell you this. I will tell you this. I can honestly say that I never gave up hope. I never gave up hope, okay? And it's not because I'm like this eternal optimist, glass, always half full type of person. It's not because I'm like that delusional homer, like that hometown fan who thinks their team can never lose or never do any wrong. Like that's not the case at all. The reason I never gave up hope is because I had seen Tom Brady do this over and over and over again. Time again. 41 times this man has gone into the fourth quarter with this team down and come back to win. And when the stakes are higher, like when the game's most important, okay, he plays even better. And so I had a history. I had a, a, a just, again, time and time again where, where he came back and the Patriots won. And so in that moment when it looked like, um, man, we were absolutely going to lose the, the Super Bowl, I still, I still had hope. Something in me believed, despite the circumstances, that he was going to do it again. All right? I didn't come here just to talk about the Patriots today, I promise. Some of you are like relieved, okay? I believe that's the kind of faith that God calls us to have. I believe that's the kind of faith that Mordecai had in his God, not just a blind faith. Okay, Hebrews 11, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So there is an element of faith that's blind, right? It's believing without seeing. We can't, we can't get around that. If, if you're a, a, a believer in the room, anyone who wants to follow Jesus at some point or another in your walk with him, in your faith journey, you're going to have to choose to make the decision to put all your trust in a God in whom you cannot see. Okay, so there's, there's no getting around that. That's not what I'm saying. But it's also not completely blind. And I think the author hints at this in, in, of Hebrews in, in verse 2 when he says, this, this is, yes, I love it. This is what the ancients were commended for. 
This is what the ancients were commended for. Now, who were the ancients? Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David, and so on and so on. He's calling back to a faithful God who's been faithful to his people, to his children from the very beginning, okay? And, and, and so Mordecai, where this comes into his story, there's a little verse, like a, you might've just skipped over it if you've read um, Esther chapter two, verse five. It's kind of a throwaway verse, but basically it gives you Mordecai's family history, okay? It, it, it says, hey, Mordecai, son of, I don't even remember all the names I couldn't even pronounce, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. I think son of Kish was one of them, right? But the point is, he's from the tribe of Benjamin, and he's actually related. He has a royal bloodline that's connected to King Saul, who was king before King David. And so the reason that verse is in there is to let us know, and to let us know that Mordecai knows that he's a Jew of Jews. He's got a history going way back to the very beginning with God, okay? So, so Mordecai knows his family history, he, he knows uh, his scripture, and, and because of that, he can look back and recall that God is good, that he is full of grace and abounding in, in, in steadfast faithfulness and, and compassion and mercy, that he's slow to anger. He knows this is who God is. And so Mordecai had faith, a faith that was unwavering in every circumstance. And the moment that he couldn't see God in his own story, he chose to look back and see him in the history of his people. That's the kind of faith I want, y'all. That's the kind of faith I think God is calling us to, a faith that is born out of remembering that God is in control, that he is good, and that he can be trusted. And so I want you to see it for yourselves in, in Esther today in uh, chapter four. This is right after Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. All right, Haman's the bad guy in our story. He is, he's the, the man at this point. He just came and, and um, basically he, he passed a law that everyone had to bow to him in his presence. Mordecai refuses to bow. We don't know exactly why, but it probably has something to do with Haman's character and that he's not a man who is worthy of bowing down to. And, and so he holds his convictions and says no. And, and, and Haman, instead of just saying, hey, I'm that he has the power. He's number two uh, beneath just the king, right? Instead of just saying, I'm going to kill Mordecai, he says, no, 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 no. This is, in his own words, he said, I'm going to pass a law uh, that would allow me to, uh, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. I'm going to wipe out all of God's people on account of this one man not bowing down to me. So Mordecai hears this news, and, and, and here's how he responds. Again, Esther chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king had come, there was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Um, some of y'all, maybe you noticed my cool shirt. I hope so. I was very excited to wear it today. This is a crucial catch. Uh, this is the NFL. It's kind of, it's got my team on it, but it also represents something bigger. Uh, out of, every year, you might remember the, the NFL always had a partnership with, uh, uh, to, to remember uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, right? And it was always in October, and they come out with the pink jerseys and stuff. Well, this year, they said, we're going to support all the, right? There's so many people, families who've been touched by cancer. We're going to support them all, and that's like the, all the different colors on the stripes in here. And they say, crucial catch. The idea is that we would catch cancer before it gets too late, right? And so intercepting that. And so uh, all the proceeds from these shirts go to help people, um, you know, for research and, and families that are affected by cancer. Now, this is, became really important to me this year because uh, my, my sister uh, was, was diagnosed with, with breast cancer. 
earlier in the year, and she's had a, a, a long, hard battle, but I'm, I'm really excited and grateful to the Lord to say that uh, the end of August, I got to see, she sent me the video of her kind of walking down the hallway in the hospital and ringing that bell after her last radiation treatment saying she's cancer-free. <laughs> Praise God. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And so um, all that to say, I, I, I bought the t-shirt to support, and it's got my team on it, and that's cute, and it's cool, and I'm excited, right? But, but you can see that, and you can see I'm, I'm trying to bring awareness, right? But what you don't see underneath that is, is the, the hours of, of late-night phone calls and early-morning prayers and, and, and just tears and, and crying out to God uh, with her and on her behalf and for my, my whole family, right? That, that, that's all connected to that. And so uh, that's what's going on here. That's a picture, right, of, of, and it doesn't even do it justice of what, what Mordecai and the Jews are going through right here. Okay, sackcloth and ashes were worn historically as a public display of grief, remorse, and repentance. Sackcloth was a, like a coarse um, a material usually made of black goat's hair, okay, and it was really uncomfortable. And, and ashes were to represent, they signified desolation and, and ruin. Okay, Mordecai put on sackcloth and ashes to show his deep sadness. Okay, this tra- about this tragic decree, the law that Haman had passed in the, in the king's name. And while Mordecai was clearly in anguish because of all of this, um, remember that, that it was his integrity, at least in part, that set this whole thing in motion. He refused to, to bow to, to Haman. So, so um, he cries out with this loud, bitter cry, but notice he does not go run back to Haman and get on his knees and, and beg him for forgiveness and ask him to, to save himself or, or his people. No, that was not only because of Mordecai's personal integrity, but also because he understood full well the, the nature of Persian laws. Okay, specifically the fact that they could not be um, undone once they were decreed. So he knows, man, this is happening. This is going to happen. And so we need to understand the gravity of the display of mourning, not just from Mordecai, but again, from many of the Jews throughout the land. This was a deep, genuine lament that was produced through, through terror, through anguish, through fear. Okay, what was to come? So this is what's happening with Mordecai and, and, and many of the other Jews, again, throughout, throughout Persia on behalf of the Jewish people. Okay, in fact, when uh, Esther... Here's about this. Some of her servants actually come and tell her, hey, your, your, your cousin's out there acting a fool, man. He's weeping and wailing, going crazy. He's dressed crazy. Like something's going on and he won't quit. And she's like, well, what's happening? She's like, here, bring him some clothes. Bring him some food. Go kind of clean him up and tell him to change. And, and so their servants go out to find Mordecai and he's like, nope, he refuses it. He wants nothing to do with it, right? Because he, he, he's feeling the sorrow of his people and he wanted their fate, their supposed fate to be reminders to everyone else in the kingdom. He was making them aware. He wanted Esther and everyone in the palace to become aware of what was happening. And so Esther uh, finally calls one of the king's servants. His name was uh, Hathak. And she calls him over to her and he says, hey, please go out to see my cousin Mordecai. I want to know what's happening. Why is he so distraught? What is troubling him and, and, and why? And so that's where we pick it up again in verse 8. Hathak goes out to see Mordecai, uh, asks him what's going on. Verse 8, he, Mordecai, also gave him a copy of the text of the edict of their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So Mordecai gives the servant a copy of the law. He's like, I want you to understand, make sure she reads this. Make sure she sees what's coming for us, for her people. Then I want you to tell her to go see her husband, the king, and plead our case, to fight for us. Verse 9, 
Hathak went back and reported to Esther that Mordecai, what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Now, this might sound crazy to us, and that's because it is crazy, okay? It is, but it's not without reason. King Xerxes, to this point, had already had multiple attempts on his life. And so he's paranoid. We learned last week when we read the whole story, right? He's, he, he drinks a lot. He's not a stable man. He doesn't have a lot of friends. He, he flies off the handle and, and overreacts. And, and we don't know if he's all right there, right? So all that comes together. And he's like, I'm going to make a law. And anyone who even comes in my presence without me sending for them, they're dead, right? So, so Esther reminds Mordecai of this law. In case you forgot me, you know Jewish law well. This is what you're asking me to do, right? And then she says, um, look, it's, it's, it's not that easy. You're literally asking me to take my life in my hands just by knocking on his door. But not only that, then she says, um, it's not like I could just mention it to him over dinner. I haven't seen him in 30 days. He has not sent for me in, in 30 days. Remember, um, the king chose Esther to be his queen but he chose her out of a harem of, of 400 women that he still had. And so um, he chose her to be his queen, but, but apparently for the last 30 days, as much as he liked her, he's been visiting his, 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 other, his other women, okay? And, and so um, I, it's, it's not to, to be, you know, extreme, like that's what's happening, right? That's the context of what's going on. And so when Esther tells this to Mordecai, she's saying, I don't even know if he loves me anymore. I don't even know if he likes me. I ain't seen him. I don't know if I'll ever see him again, right? Verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Mordecai reminds his little cousin Esther that she could not remain insulated from this decree any more than anyone else. In other words, he's saying, Esther, hey, look, when they come for me, make no mistake, they're coming for you too. They will come for you too. And he continues, verse 14, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. It's coming. But you and your father's family will perish. Mordecai's trust was in the faithfulness of his God, not in the faithfulness of Esther. Okay, he knows that God will never let his people down, even if we sometimes as individuals let him down. But he also is reminding Esther again that while the fate of God's people rested on God and not on her, her fate and his by extension, he said, you and your father's family, that's a funny way of saying me and you, because she doesn't have any other family. It's him, he's her only family and her. And he's saying our fate might very well rest on you being faithful to God. He's reminding Esther that God's people are praying. Remember, all over Persia, they're in sackcloth and and ashes and they're weeping and wailing and they're fasting and they're praying. He says God's people are, 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 are fasting, they're praying, they're expecting him to move on their behalf. And Mordecai is convinced that God hears their pleas, that he will deliver his people whether he gets to see it or not. There's just a, there's a, there's a faith in there 
from Mordecai in the face of all these circumstances that says, I have no doubt what God is going to do. And maybe I'll be blessed enough to see it and experience it, or maybe I won't, but don't doubt that it's going to happen. And, and as I was just kind of marinating on that this week and, and, and reading that verse over and over again, uh, God kind of brought my mind to a, a speech, a famous speech by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It was actually the last speech he gave um, on the night before he was, he was killed. And, and, and in that speech, he has this famous line that said, I may not get there with you. I may not get there with you, right? And I'm not, I can't do it justice. And so I want you to check it out. Put, put, put your eyes on this. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Come on, somebody. That, that's some preaching right there. Come on. I just, again, man, my, God just kept bringing me back to that speech. And so I watched that clip so many times. And, and um, there's just this sense of courage and confidence and, and a spirit of hope that flows through Dr. King as he says those words, right? As he, he possesses, he possessed a transcendent kind of faith, a faith that was undeniable, a faith that no man could take from him. And it's evident in that moment. And I just kept, I kept coming back to the question because it's the same type of faith that I think Mordecai displays here in the face of almost certain death. And I kept coming back to the question, where's that come from? Where's that kind of faith come from? Where did Dr. King get it? Where, does, where did Mordecai find it? And, and, and God kind of brought me to, to four things, okay? Number one, scripture. Scripture, Okay. It's no mistake that he was, he was referring to Moses and basically quoting Moses on the, on the mountaintop. It comes from scripture. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Okay, what message? The message is the gospel, the incredible news of our rescue and adoption by God through Jesus that's the, that's the gospel. That message is all throughout the narrative of scripture from the Old Testament all the way through the new. It's, it's about Jesus. It's about God redeeming and restoring his people through his son, Jesus Christ. Okay. And, and that's all in his, his word. God's word will build your faith. You can't, you can't dig into scripture and, 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 and uh, open yourself up to what Jesus did for us and not, and not build your faith. 
It's impossible because that's, that's how he created it. God's, God's word will, will build your faith. Mordecai knew this. He knew scripture well. The second thing I think is prayer. Prayer. Man, prayer, it not only um, does it bring us closer in our relationship to God, right? We all have human relationships. How, how, how well will your relationship thrive if you don't communicate, right? If you don't talk. And so it's our way we communicate to God, where we, we communicate our heart to him, but also receive his heart and his love and his grace for, for us, right? But on top of that, there's something about prayer, just something in the nature of me coming to God and and crying out to him, acknowledging to him, asking him, speaking to him, something in that process reminds me that God is listening, that he's listening and that he's in control. And that builds my faith. That builds my faith. It's not on me. I'm not in this alone, but I got a perfect father in heaven who loves me perfectly. Prayer will build your faith. Scripture will build your faith. The second thing, I mean, excuse me, the third thing is personal testimony personal testimony. By that, I mean God, the times that he showed up in your story, okay? Now, for me, these last uh, uh, couple weeks, I've been thinking a lot about this because I recently shared my story, not just my testimony, like this is how I met Jesus and this is, you know, my life now. I've done that many times, but I told like my life story to uh, a group of guys that I'm, I'm doing life with that, that we are, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of my, my team and we, we study the word together and we're trying to become stronger men of God together. And I thought, man, I'll go first. I'm going to tell my story. And in the process of telling my story to them, just thinking back to the pivotal moments in my life, I didn't accept Jesus till I was 29 years old. Okay. And so, so, um, looking back at the 29 years when I wasn't walking with him and, and I didn't even know him and, and realizing the moments that he was there all along, whether I knew it or not. Right? And, and, and there's, so, there's so many, there's so many. But I think about um, when, I, when I met my, my wife, who was the first person to actually talk to me about Jesus, to really share the gospel with me and ultimately bring me to church and, 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 and all that. And I've shared that story before, but, but what I haven't shared is that when we met, I was in a really bad place in my life and I was making bad choices and I wasn't the type of man that I would wanna be with, okay, if I was her. But somehow, um, God, as I look back on it now, like I even remember telling her, hey, I don't, I'm, you don't want to be with me. I don't want to be in a relationship. Like I was trying to actively push her away, but something in me was kept being drawn back to her. I, had, I didn't know what it was. It was weird. It was freaking me out. But, but now I look back on it and as clear as day, it was God. I sent you this woman to bring you closer to me and to bless your life. And so I, I'm so grateful for him for that. But I don't remember if I don't look back on my story. My, 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 Middle daughter, uh, Gigi, who, who is, uh, she's six or seven now. She's seven now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I, it's hard to keep track, man. I got a lot of kids. So <laughs> the, <laughs> when she was about 18 months, um, she got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And, and the way we found out was, I mean, she, was, she went from being the, the happiest child you would ever see, like never cried as a baby, nothing, to all of a sudden being inconsolable, screaming bloody murder nonstop. And we went from doctor to doctor to doctor. This went on for like a month. One doctor says, oh, she's constipated, give her juice. Well, come to find out she's type 1 diabetes and we're plying her with sugar. And so, you know, finally, an emergency room visit, one doctor decides, hey, look, we're going to, let's test her for diabetes. Sure enough, she's got type 1 diabetes. We are in the hospital for the next 72 hours straight, and we're going to school. It's like boot camp for parents with kids with diabetes, because they're like, we got to send her home with you, so we're going to teach you how to take care of her. And it was like, like just mind-blowing stuff. It was very crazy, but there's something about, in the, in the middle of that, like 
typically the old me, I had uh, been a Christian. I, had been, I gave my life to Jesus a few years before that, right? Prior to that, I, I, I know I would have been like, man, God, how can you do this? She's an innocent little girl. I've been mad and crying out and justifiably so, I think, uh, in my mind, I would have felt that way. But in, that wasn't how it was. Instead, I had, a, I had a peace. Like I was freaking out and I was nervous, and I was, but I also had a peace about me. And, and, and so did my wife. And, and, and to take it a step further, right, I had uh, just accepted a job as a youth pastor as a church. Did not, they didn't offer health insurance at the time. And so I was kind of on my own. My wife just uh, left her job and started her own company. And so she didn't have, we didn't have health insurance, right? But luckily we lived in, in Kentucky at the time, Lexington, Kentucky, and, and Kentucky had just uh, accepted the, the, the Medicaid expansion. And so she was all covered. Now, please hear me. I'm not, I don't care politics, healthcare. I'm not trying to go there. Here's what I'm saying. We moved to North Carolina shortly after that. If we were not in Kentucky at the time, her, her uh, type 1 diabetes would cost upwards of thousands of dollars a month just to maintain. We would, I don't know how we were going to pay for it. I look back on it now. What I'm saying is God had that. He had her in his hand. He had us in his hand. We were in the right time at the right place for the right reason. Okay? So I'm just, there are, that's two examples, but I could be here all day. We don't have the time. I look back at my life and I see God and I know he showed up and I know he's faithful. I know he's real and I know he loves me and that his grace is for me. Do you see what I'm saying? Personal testimony will build your faith. Number four, shared testimony. Shared testimony. This is, this is, I'm talking about when, when we tell our story to our kids and our grandkids, and they pass it on, and so on, and so on, much like the Israelites did all the way throughout the history of, of their people. Okay, Psalm uh, chapter 78. I'm going to read this from the message, which isn't a direct translation. It's more of a, a paraphrase or, or a commentary, but I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it. So he said this, listen, dear friends, to God's truth. Bend your ears to what I tell you. I'll let you in on the sweet old truths Stories we heard from our fathers, counsel we learned at our mother's knee. We're not keeping this to ourselves. We're passing it along to the next generation. God's fame and fortune, the marvelous things he has done. He planted a witness in Jacob, set his word firmly in Israel, then commanded our parents to teach it to their children so the next generation would know and all generations to come know the truth and tell the stories so their children can trust in God. This is something the people of God have been doing for thousands of years. Telling the stories of God's faithfulness, of his goodness, of the miraculous things that he has done, the ways that he has shown up, the way that he has provided, and passing them down from generation to generation. And that builds the faith of the next generation. And it builds the faith of the people telling the stories because, again, we remember we remember. And so again, I think this is where Mordecai's faith comes from, from scripture, the word of God, from prayer, a tight relationship with his father in heaven, from his personal testimony. God showed up in his life, I have no doubt. And from the shared testimony of his people. That's why he has the courage, the strength, the hope, and the faith in this moment to say to Esther, God will deliver us. God will deliver his people despite the circumstances, whether I get to see it or not. I have no doubt about it. I know how this story ends. God wins. God wins. And I choose him. I choose to serve him and live for him and love him. 
I'm with him. And then he continues in verse 14 to deliver probably the most famous line in the entire story. Mordecai says, and who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. For such a time as this. Mordecai was convinced that God had put Esther in this position, that he made her queen at this time, in this place, for a reason. And now he's encouraging her. This once orphan girl in exile whom he chose to adopt and raise as his own daughter, he's encouraging her now to have the courage and the wisdom to see that reason and step into it. To step into her calling. And again, if you know the story, you know how Esther responds. We're going we're gonna to spend a whole lot of time talking about that over the next couple of weeks. But for, for today, as I begin to wrap these things up, um, I want to spend a little time talking about Esther's name. Okay, Esther's name. In the Hebrew Bible, uh, Queen Esther was born with the name Hadassah. And Hadassah was her Jewish name, and, and her name was changed to Esther in order to hide her identity uh, her, her Jew, uh, as a Jew upon becoming the queen of Persia. All right, so the three-letter root of the name Esther in Hebrew is S-T-R. Okay, and, and that means, in, in Hebrew, it means to hide or to conceal. Okay, but it's also can be derived from the old Persian word stara, which means star. Okay, so put them together and you have a hidden star, a hidden star. Okay, now, why, 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 why does that matter? Remember, God's name is not mentioned in the entire narrative of Esther. Okay, the entire book, all 10 chapters. And here we are in the middle of the story. Things about, are about as dark as they can possibly be, not just for Esther and Mordecai, but for all of God's people. They've got a death sentence hanging over them. Now, wouldn't it be just like God to hide or conceal a great big shining star right there in the middle of all this darkness? Only to reveal it, to unveil it, to let it loose at the perfect moment. And as that star rises, so too does the, the hope of his people. As that star rises, so too does the, the faith and the spirit of his people. As God's magnificent light shines in the darkness, what do you think that meant for the people of God? It made me think of, of another time when it was darkness and people were looking up to the night sky and there was a star and there were some wise men and some, some shepherds and, and, and a baby was born and the star signified a savior who was gonna come and save and redeem his people. His name was Jesus. Now I'm gonna start preaching Christmas. We'll save that. But God sets the stage here and it's not an accident. We watched that clip of, of Dr. King's speech I told you I was inspired by it, so I downloaded it, and I read the entire transcript of it a couple times. And, and um, if you got time on your hands, man, it was good stuff. <laughs> it really was. But, but it, it, uh, there's a moment in there kind of earlier on in the speech where basically he says, man, if God showed up to me and said, uh, I can take you, I'll bring you anywhere you want to go, 
in history and time and drop you there and you can be alive in that place in that time, right? Where, you know, where would you want to be? Where do you want me to take you? And Dr. King, uh, as only he can, goes through this beautiful kind of um, storytelling of like, you know, go by the, just all these moments in history. I'm not going to do it justice. But he, he says, I'd love to see that, but no, I'd love to see that, but no, I'd love to go there, but no. He said, as a matter of fact, I want to be right here a few years into the second half of the 20th century. He's talking about right where, where he is. 1960s, civil rights movement. He says, I'd want to be right here, right, right now. And that's where I'm going to pick up the transcript, okay? Now, that's a strange statement to make because the world is all messed up. The nation is sick. The tr- there is trouble in the land, confusion all around. That's a strange statement. But I know somehow, that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. And I see God working in this period of the 20th century in a way that men, in some strange way, are responding. But I know that somehow, only when it's dark enough can you see the stars. I believe that was true then. I believe it's true today for us, church. I really do, with everything in me. This principle applies to us as as well. God puts us in specific times and places for a reason. I really do believe that. And much like Esther, we need the wisdom to see that reason and the courage to step into it, to walk in it. There is a darkness in this world that's very real. I don't have to tell you all that. We, we can see that all around us. Some of you are walking right in the middle of it right now. And if we're not careful, it can cast a shadow on everything else in our lives. Everywhere we go, everything we see, everything we do, to the point where darkness is all we know. But Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior who came to a dark world to shine a light and to be a light and, and, and sent his spirit in us so that we would be lights in a dark world as well. God has a plan, not just for you and your life specifically, he does, but also for his kingdom and for the redemption and the restoration of his people. And he's inviting you to be a part of it, to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This is who we're called to be. We're called to be lights, shining bright stars in a dark world that point people to a God who is good. Not just great, not just powerful, not just amazing, but he's good. He's personal. He knows your name. He is loving. He's compassionate. He is in control, and he can be trusted. But you know what? It takes faith to live that way. It takes faith to do that. A trust in God that is born out of scripture, that is strengthened through prayer, that's confirmed by your personal testimony and the testimony of God's people from Abraham to Moses to Jacob to to Mordecai and Esther to Jesus to Peter and Paul right on down to you and your family. That's the kind of faith I want, church. I started out saying that. That's the kind of faith I want for each and every one of you. That's the kind of faith I believe God is calling us to, a relentless faith in a relentless God. Amen? Let that be our legacy. Let that be our legacy. Would y'all pray with me?
Father, thank you for this day, God. I thank you for these people, Lord, your people. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus, for his sacrifice, his love, his grace, the example, God, that he, that he set for us, the freedom that he bought us on the cross. God, we're so grateful. Thank you for, for our history. <laughs> thank you, God, that you have, you've, there's never been a moment when you haven't been with us when you haven't seen us, when, you, when, you, when your love didn't go before us, God. I pray now you would help us to remember that. I pray you would instill in us the kind of faith that Mordecai had, the kind of faith that, that Dr. King had. Lord, in the face of, of the most uh, scariest circumstance, that we would not waver in our trust and in our hope, not in ourselves, but in you. God, I, we, I believe though, that's the people you're calling us to be. Lord, so help us this week when things get real to dig into that, Lord, to rely on you and not ourselves, to look to you in your light instead of being suffocated by the darkness. Lord, we need you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, thank you all for coming out today. Please come back next week, week three of Esther, choosing to see. Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be amazing, and I'm so excited to hear God speak through my sister, Joy Bay. So come on out and, and check her out, all right? Have a great week.